Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, we're thanking you for this day, the Lord's day. We're praying that as people are coming and going, as the snow continues to come down, that you give safety on the roads, ministering to those who are conscious of um, the conditions, and that your hand of protection is upon them. Father, within the services this morning, what we want to do is to seek you. Put you first. Allow for your word to penetrate our hearts. Allow for the glory of Jesus Christ to be first and foremost part of our worship experience. We'd love to be able to worship you, Father. We'd love to be able to sing praise to you. We'd love to be able to take your word and relate it to everyday living. Which is now what we want to do this morning, Father. So these moments to come are special, they're unique, they're designed by you for us to be able to apply your truth to life. Pray now that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. So again, our Father, we've come here, come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. And thinking about the infancy of the early church, my mind goes back to a section that Gary Richman offers in his book, uh, In a View from the Zoo, where he talks about the birth of a giraffe. The first thing to emerge are the baby giraffe's front hoofs and head. A few minutes later, the plucky newborn calves hurled forth, falls ten feet, lands on its back, and within seconds he rolls to an upright position with his legs tucked under his body. And from this position, he considers the world for the first time, shakes off the last vestiges of the birthing fluid from his eyes and his ears. Listen to this. The mother giraffe lowers her head long enough to take a quick look. Then she positions herself directly over her calf. She waits for about a minute, and then she does the most unreasonable thing. She swings her long, pendulous leg outward and kicks her baby so that it is sent sprawling head over heels. And when it doesn't get up, the violent process is repeated over and over again. The struggle to rise is momentous, he writes. As the baby calf grows tired, the mother kicks it again to stimulate its efforts. And finally, the calf stands for the first time on its wobbly legs. And then the mother giraffe does the most remarkable thing. She kicks it off his feet again. Why? Listen. She wants it to remember how it got up. For you see, in the wild, baby giraffes must be able to get up, and to get up as quickly as possible in order to stay with the herd where there's safety. Lions, leopards, wild hunting dogs, they all enjoy young giraffes, you see, and they'd get it too. 
if the mother did not graciously teach her calf to get up quickly and get with it. He then writes, I've thought about the birth of the giraffe many a time. I can see parallels in my life and in the Christian community. There have been many times when it seemed that I had just stood up after a trial, only to be knocked down again by the next. But it was God helping me to remember how it was that I got up, urging me always to walk with him in his shadow, under his care, for you see, there's grace in the kick. There's grace in the kick. The early church is about to get kicked out of Jerusalem. It's a painful experience. They have watched as this one they admired so greatly and deeply, Stephen, giving testimony to his faith in Jesus Christ, was put to death by a man, a Pharisee, by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And now they're wondering what's next. They've seen the apostles, such as Peter and John, incarcerated for their faith. They've heard about the threats of the, towards the Christian community out in the streets of Jerusalem. And now the word is getting out that it's not safe to be a Christian, a Christian Jew. What's God going to do next? Now, maybe you feel that somewhere over the course of these days, these weeks, these months, the last years, you've had the legs kicked out from under you. That could very well be the kick of grace. And what God is now doing is that he's challenging you to stand up once again because like the giraffe, this is a difficult world to live in and we've got to be able to do is to understand what's necessary to keep on keeping on and to fulfill the mission that God has called us to, our purpose for living. What I want to do with you in these minutes to come is to simply draw three insights that I find in these verses as God in his sovereign purposes had set us plan in motion for the advancement of the gospel will involve kicking the believers out of Jerusalem outwards to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. Three insights. Let's check them out. And the first is found in verse 1 down through verse 3. But as the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, I want you to first notice with me this morning the trials that God permits. When the gospel is to advance, the gospel will always be associated with trials. And when you're going through trials, you've got to ask yourself, and how is this related to the gospel? God is allowing me to have a platform upon which to communicate truth through how I live and what I say. So approved of his execution. Saul would have been listening very carefully to the testimony of Stephen regarding the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. What kind of impact would that have upon Saul of Tarsus when he would be making his way on the road to Damascus in the very next chapter? And meanwhile, the people in the church are wondering what comes next. 
Saul must have some kind of authoritative position now in Pharisaic circles. Because Luke uses a very formal word. Saul approved of his execution. It's as if the authority figure says, yep, go ahead with it. And they did. And so what you and I are told next is that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They're all scattered. They've been gathered. They're now scattered. And notice where they are scattered to. The regions of Judea and Samaria, everyone except the apostles. Judea, Samaria. Haven't you heard of that before? As you see in your insert this morning, I typically pen it this way. Let Acts 1.8 interpret Acts 8.1. Because in Acts 1.8, you and I are told that Jesus said to his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They are gathered, they'll be scattered. And so now the gracious kick is taking place. There's a movement afoot, and now they're going to be taking the gospel outward. Now they might say, but we prefer Jerusalem. We're comfortable here. It's threatening, yes, but we're familiar with the situation here. We don't know Judea. We don't know Samaria. We don't get along with Samaritans. But you see, what you and I have got to understand is what we've said periodically. In God's grace, we're not to be isolated from the culture. We're to be insulated in the culture. God takes his people and he puts them in very unique settings, sometimes settings that they would not choose in and of themselves, so that we would be able then to communicate God's grace to people that others would not be able to communicate grace to. A scattering's taking place. It's as Becky Pipper would have put it, out of the salt shaker and into the world. Now, you might find, and I might find, that the salt shaker is a wonderful place to stay put. But that's not where the salt was meant to be. The salt's meant to be applied. And so everybody is heading in every which direction, but they are following the principle that God had laid forth in Acts 1.8, and now it's Acts 8.1. But you've now moved to verse 2. And verse 2, you and I are told that devout men buried Stephen. Devout men. The same word which was used in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Where in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, the physician Luke had informed you and me there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Already what he's doing is he's setting up a strategy where men from every nation have been in Jerusalem. Now they're going to take the gospel out to the nations, you see. And so there's this rhythm of the gathered, and there's the rhythm of the scattered. And so they're heading out, everybody except the apostles. Why? Because, well, because Peter and John, among others, are Hebraistic, not Hellenistic Jews. And God is now going to use Hellenistic Jews rather than Hebraistic Jews for the next step in his strategy. Because Hellenistic Jews weren't fully welcome in Jerusalem. They felt as if they were dis disengaged from the culture. 
they're going to take the gospel out, not the Hebraistic Jews at this point. So devout men, however, buried Stephen. That would have been high risk. But you see, in the Mediterranean culture, it would have been looked down upon not to bury someone who had just passed. And so they're going out of their way, even though they're risking their lives because they're aligning themselves with Stephen and Stephen's Savior by burying, burying him. And they're making a great lamentation over him. But see the contrast? You're up to verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. The very same phraseology that was used to describe the apostles when in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So now what the evil one's trying to do is to counter the forward movement of the gospel. It was going from house to house, so now here is Saul going from house to house. Do you see how all this fits together? Connect the dots. What God is attempting to do is to communicate that grace is not to be kept within the salt shaker. To be spread out, applied in various settings. Shift the analogy. I've used this periodically. I'm recalling a time after a ball game back at Wheaton where some of the athletes gathered together. It was later at night, and we decided we were going to play a little pool. Ever done it? You look at the pool table, and whoever was playing last, they left all the balls scattered all over the table. So it's going to be necessary for someone to gather them, realign them, in a triangular configuration, one end of the table. It happens. Somebody goes to the wall, and there on the wall hangs a form, a simple wooden triangular form. It's called a rack. And all the balls, then, are placed inside this form, those with a circle around them, alternating with those that are solid color. And the black eight ball, of course, is placed, placed right there in the center. Now, once all the balls have been gathered, the form's lifted, everybody's standing around the table, and then you hear these words. It's your turn to break. Breaks a good description, you see, of what happens next. Because the breaker will approach the table, smack the white cue ball down the length of the table, crash against the balls, sending the balls in every direction. But you see, there's a purpose to the break. The objective is to get the balls where they are meant to be in the pockets. And every time I ponder that scene, I think about Acts 8. There's a breaker here. The balls have been gathered, so to speak. But then the form has been lifted. And then we see the sudden collision, and balls are going in all sorts of directions. Now, that is meant to happen to the church. It happened in Acts 8. 
What is also interesting, I find, pastorally, is this happens in people's lives where there is an outside force that makes its way towards us, and then this incredible collision occurs. And you felt so comfortable in what you might call the gathered state. And lo and behold, because of that external force, you find that your life, your family, your dreams, your objectives, and your relationships are now in the the scattered state. This is what was happening in the early church. But you see, just like with that mother giraffe where there was grace in the kick, so likewise with that cue ball, there's grace in the collision. The collision was necessary to get the balls where they were meant to be. Now what God is doing at this point is taking his followers in Jerusalem and setting them in directions where they were meant to be. Now look at the collisions of your life. It was a hit. It hurt. And you're somewhere you didn't expect to be. And all of a sudden now, what you find is that you might feel as though you are dislocated, maybe even in a sense disconnected. But when your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are not dislocated. You are under his authority. And furthermore, you're not disconnected because you're connected to his sovereign plan for your life. Allow for the collisions of life to be viewed as potential aspects to learning more about grace and the way in which God takes the gathered and creates a rhythm between the gathered and the scattered states of our everyday being. Once you do that, you realize, I'm not isolated from all this. Collisions happen. But I am insulated through all of this, no matter where I find the trajectory of my life. And when you think that through, you realize that as the gospel of Jesus Christ advances, you accept, number one, this basic premise. You hear the trials that God permits. There's truth that needs to be shared in the midst of the trials. It was interesting that Tertullian, as he looked back upon the early church, would write, kill us torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. For the seed of the church is the blood of the Christians, he wrote. But then Laura's story would go on to say, we pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering All the while you hear each spoken deed, yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you are near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? 
there is mercy in disguise in these verses. Now there's a second insight regarding this advancement of the gospel. You've not only noticed now the trials that God permits, I want you to also see secondly the transitions that God creates. Because once you experience this kind of what I will call personal dislocation, where you are in some different state, metaphorically speaking, compared to where you were, God likewise transitions and transitions you effectively. Now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. The word preaching there means really evangelizing. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Samaria. Now, how did God go about taking this time of trial and then creating a time of transition? Do you remember that woman at the well that Jesus encountered in John chapter 4? Where was Jesus located? Samaria. What was this woman? A Samaritan woman. And in the conversation, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What you need to understand is that there was tension between Samaritans and Hebraistic Jews as to where to worship God. Samaritans said it's got to be on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Hebraistic Jews said it's got to be in Jerusalem. The tensions were there. The thing about the Samaritans is that in 722 B.C., the Samaritans, they traced their identity to this moment. They were dislocated. Ten tribes of the north were removed through persecution by the Assyrians. They headed elsewhere. They intermarried. They married people that were not aligned to God's will. They would eventually return and settle in Samaria. They were not accepted by the Hebraistic Jews because they were not 100% Jewish. You ever struggle with acceptance? Connectedness? So these people do not feel accepted. They don't feel connected. So who comes their way? Philip, a Hellenistic Jew, who's been kicked out, disconnected, doesn't feel accepted. And so what God has done then with Philip is that he has created a man to deliver the gospel where now these people feel like there's common ground here. I can identify with this man. We're not accepted in Jerusalem, but this man was not accepted in Jerusalem either. Hebraistic Jews don't accept us, but they didn't accept this man either. He's a Hellenistic Jew. See how all this fits together, you see? And how Jesus had already prepared them for this transition by ministering through that woman at the well? Question. How has God, as you look back over your life, prepared you for transitions? What's been your ministry at the well encounter in life? Jesus was paving the way. Well, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what, he was, he, what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice, and they came out many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
so there was much joy in the city. And so now, you're on the tour bus with me. We're back in Israel once again. And we're leaving Jerusalem now. And I say, I want to take you towards the West Bank. And you raise your eyebrows because you remember the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember how the apostles did not necessarily want to be near a Samaritan. In fact, avoid the cities. So look at the map now that appears on the screen. And there in the map, what you see at this point is that you got Jerusalem and your tour bus now is now making its way northward. West Bank is here. Now, what I want you to know is that Tel Aviv is in this area here. It's where the airport is when you arrived initially. And there is a Samaritan community here, and there's a Samaritan community there. Not large in number, but they still exist to this very day. I'll, I'll have you meet them in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, what I want you to do is to get your bearings because you're heading northward, and you see this double line? That was Philip's journey. That was the path that he took. Now, the Hebraistic Jews are here. He's a Hellenistic Jew. He's not accepted there. Makes his way northward into the land that Hebraistic Jews want to avoid. But Jesus went there, met the woman at the well, didn't he? Jesus told the story about the good Samaritan, didn't he? By the way, when I was in the Samaria, Samaria region, I, I went into a cave with some of the others in the tour, and there was, there was a tour guide who had a group of us sit down, and lo and behold, there's this, there is this white uh, sheet that's found. They're draped on a wall. He says, I want to show you a little movie clip, TV clip, to be honest. And lo and behold, it's Seinfeld. And it's a clip from Seinfeld when Seinfeld is in New York City with a few of his friends, you see. And all of a sudden, they get arrested because they've broken the Samaritan laws. They had not been good Samaritans, evidently, to somebody who had been in a state of hurt nearby. And so they avoided the person. Now they're being arrested. They wanted us to get a sense of what Samaria was all about, you see. Never forget. Look what comes next. Here's a seed now from what Samaria looks like, appears on the screen. Uh, not the most picturesque setting. Kind of barren, isn't it? But through it all, what you've got to be able to see is that God is sovereign even over the barren settings of life that sometimes you and I find ourselves in. Ever been there? where it seemed as though everything was so comfortable in your gathered state, and lo and behold, you are now in the scattered state. You feel a bit disconnected, disoriented. God has positioned you in a setting you didn't expect to find yourself in, and now God is saying, share Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Think of Philip. And now you move from the trials you experience to the transitions that you're having to embrace don't fight the transitions. Embrace the transitions. And remember how Jesus prepped all of this by his encounter with the women at the well. You ready for what comes next? Sugar. Check out now, beginning of verse 9. Because in the beginning of verse 9, what you and I find is the third of the three insights that you're going to find within this section. Not only the trials that God permits, number one, and the transitions that God creates, number two, but now thirdly, the transformations that God tests 
and he will test when someone has been transformed supposedly by grace. Number three, there was a man. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic, you see, in the city. And you're already looking at me and say, Gare, practice magic in the city. What's this all about? You say, well, what you've got to understand is that in that time period, Samaria was mocked by the occult. The occult was prevalent within that setting. And so here now is Simon. And he is what I will call a spiritual celebrity. Would have had his own television show, given the opportunity. He's been practicing magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him. He's got a following. Got an audience, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God. So now this occultic figure is there. He's got this following, very spiritual in his orientation. But didn't Francis Schaeffer write a book about true spirituality? Which means there's also false spirituality. And the spiritualities of this world have got to be measured by the truth of God's word, not by other books that have been written about spirituality. And so now we find ourselves in this situation where Philip has been disconnected, dissociated, he's been thrust out, and he's encountering this spiritual celebrity by the name of Simon. And you're up to verse 10. They're all paying attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God. It's called great. They're connecting him in their minds to God. Is he? Isn't he? They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But as is typical in Scripture, you're about to be given a contrast. But God has a way of disrupting people's lives. He disrupts false spiritualities with true spirituality. Another collision is about to happen. But when they believe Philip, feel the tension between Philip and Simon? As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, which involves both a now and a not yet, and the name of Jesus Christ, and the name of Jesus Christ was a business term that was used in that day and age in the name of somebody to describe a transaction where something is now in someone else's possession. In other words, now people are in Jesus Christ's possession. They're baptized, both men and women. And now you're leaning forward. Because now look who else gets baptized. Even Simon. Even Simon himself believed. And you say, but Gary, what's the big deal? He believed. But didn't James himself say the demons believe and shudder? What we see here now at this point is that while this is a profession of faith, it's a profession of faith without the possession of faith. It's an external display without an internal reality. He looks the part, he acts the part, he fits the part. 
Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. He's with him. Part of the crowd. But false spirituality will mingle with true spirituality. And after seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, we were told in verse 9, the people were amazed at Simon. Now, Simon is amazed at Philip. There's amazement everywhere you turn. But back to the Samaritans. Uh, you're, you're still with me, and we haven't gotten back on the tour bus yet. And I, I want to say, you know, they're still around. Take a look at this picture of Samaritans in this day and age that now appears on the screen. So if we go towards Tel Aviv, there's a small community there where Samaritans can be found. If you are a tour guide, it's gracious. He will also take you towards the West Bank where another grouping of Samaritans are found. And they feel disconnected within the land of Israel. To this day, they still feel the tension between themselves and the Hebrewistic Jews that are located within Jerusalem's confines. Some things just never change, you see. There they are. Good-looking guys. Philip, that's the kind of people he was talking to. But back to the text. Because now you're up to verse 14, and what happens here? In verse 14, continue reading now, that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Do you realize they didn't send Peter and John to Samaria? God sent Philip to Samaria. But now Philip has led people to Christ. Now's the time to send Peter and John because Peter and John are Hebraistic Jewish Christians. They wouldn't have the same common ground as a Hellenistic Christian Jew, such as Philip would be able to experience, feeling dislocated from the Hebraists. They appear on the scene. And what God is graciously doing is connecting now Jerusalem to Samaria and Samaria to Jerusalem. Astounding. Here come Peter and John. Come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And as they come down and pray for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. God had providentially withheld the blessing of the Holy Spirit at this point until there was this visible sense that the apostles were embracing what Philip was professing and communicating. Not only being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, they laid their hands on them. What a statement. Fellowship. Christian Hebraistic Jews, the gospel going from a Christian Hellenistic Jew, they lay hands upon Samaritans. There was a time where they would have lied to get their hands on Samaritans. Now they're laying their hands upon the Samaritans. They're saying, we're one. Now you look at your times in which you've experienced collisions in life. And you can't believe you're where you are right now and what you've experienced. But it gives you new opportunities, so to speak, to be a blessing to someone else so that they in turn, because of Jesus Christ being shared by you, find that there's a sense of oneness they previously lacked. But there's Simon in 18. 
He saw that the Spirit had been given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. So what does he do? He offers them money. This is commercialized spirituality. Still happens. Happens around the world. He's saying, give me this power. Hadn't they previously said in verse 10, this man is the power of God? But now his star is fading. And so he's saying, can you give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit? You see, he's got a problem here. And there's too many people, even today, about the Holy Spirit. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as he, and he's thinking the Holy Spirit is it. When you think of the Holy Spirit as it, you're asking yourself the question, how can I get more of it? The King Power. When you think of the Holy Spirit as a person, you're asking, how can he get more of me? Person, not power. We've got a person-power clash happening here. Peter sees it. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, but as you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in the matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Pause. Several years ago, I was reading the memoirs of Phil Donahue. Phil Donahue was, uh, he's about 84 years of age now, still alive, married to Marlo Thomas. And Phil Donahue had television shows. He received many Emmys for his broadcasting skill as a journalist. Nominal Catholic, highly skeptical about all things pertaining to the Lord. But there was something riveting in his life experience, where in early stage in his news reporting, he was sent down south. <coughs> Flooding had occurred in a particular town around Mississippi. And when he arrived on the scene with his camera crew, a little gathering of people who loved Jesus were in a circle. They're praying. And as the group was ending, their pastor then prayed, an elderly man, very eloquent in what he offered. Donahue says that even in his skepticism, he was moved, moved powerfully, as was the camera crew, to such an extent they forgot to utilize their cameras. When Donahue realized what had been done, he turned to the crew and they shrugged their shoulders. They didn't get it on film. So Donahue went rushing up to the pastor and said, would you mind doing it again? We want to get it on film. And this wise elderly pastor leaned forward at Donahue and said, I don't play to the cameras. I pray to the Lord. And he walked away. Spiritual celebrities play to the cameras. Authentic Christianity prays to the Lord. You see. Simon's taken aback. Peter's called his bluff. Simon says, simply pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is not a prayer of repentance. This is just simply a prayer for relief and protection. 
Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, tells us eventually that Simon became a leader of what's known as the Gnostic movement, a heretical movement on opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here you see the clash between true and false spiritualities. But notice how false spirituality clings carefully and closely to those who are committed to true spirituality. He looked the pot, but Peter discerned. Simon sought entertainment. Peter displayed discernment. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, don't you love how this ends? They returned to Jerusalem. Sure they did. But notice what they did along the way. Preaching the gospel, literally evangelizing to many villages of the Samaritans. In the wild, baby giraffes got to be able to get up as quickly as possible. For you see, if the mother didn't teach her calf to get up quickly and get with it, she would be consumed. He would be consumed. There's grace in the kick. Have you been kicked? Are you hurting? Have you considered that this is God's way of using you for his glory? Let's stand together. Father, we're thanking you. We see the kick. We ponder the pool table. Everything is so neatly gathered together. And then a collision takes place. The balls are scattered. There's a cosmic tension. The evil one wants to be able to consolidate the gospel, isolate the gospel. You, on the other hand, want to spread the gospel. And you even at times use the evil one's intentions to accomplish the greater good. For the gospel is not meant to be isolated, but it is meant to be integrated into the culture as your people are meant to be insulated within the culture. So, Father, help us now to take what's here, apply your truth to our lives. And the result, Father, is going to be that no matter you, where you send us tomorrow morning, we're there because of you, and we're there to represent you. And we will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.